In 2019, in the magazine Current Affairs, a former McKinsey consultant wrote, There is no secret society shaping every major decision and determining the direction of human history. There is, however, McKinsey and Company. Well, my guest on the program today has spent years doing a deep dive into the prestigious consulting company, and he's here today to talk about what he's learned about its influence around the world, including here in Canada. Michael Forsyth is an investigative reporter for the New York Times and co-author of When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the world's most powerful consulting firm. Michael Forsyth is my guest today on Lean Out. Michael, welcome to Lean Out. Happy to be here. It's great to have you on today to talk about McKinsey, which has made news in Canada in recent months. Um, to start, I want to read a quote from your book, which is out in paperback in Canada next week, to set the stage for a conversation about the firm's outsized influence. You write, for the past century, McKinsey has methodically built its marquee consultancy by selling its philosophy of scientific management to the world's best-known blue-chip companies. At one time or another, most Fortune 500 companies have paid McKinsey for advice. So have more than 100 government agencies around the world. You go on to write, the firm has advised virtually every major pharmaceutical company and their regulators, along with health insurers, airlines, universities, museums, weapon makers, private equity firms, casinos, bookmakers, professional sports teams, and media companies, including the New York Times. This book began with a meeting during which your former executive editor, Dean Baquet, mentioned to reporters he'd like to see a granular look at major corporations to help readers understand how power is wielded in society. What made you and your co-author, Walt Bogdanich, land on McKinsey? So um, all credit definitely goes to Walt for starting this. Um, He was looking at the issue of income inequality in the United States before the 2016 election, and he was trying to find some root causes. Um, And he, he came across McKinsey and its work, you know, throughout the decades helping the boardroom, the C-suites of corporations, um, and thought it would be a good idea to look closely uh, at that company to get at kind of the root causes, the rise of populism in the United States, you know, exemplified by Donald Trump, you know, what what was behind that? It took a while to get everybody convinced at the times, but he brought me on and the two of us started working in earnest on this together in uh, 2018. Mm. And I want to I want to talk a little bit about the income inequality piece, something that I've been thinking a lot about over the past few decades. McKinsey has led the charge when it comes to advising companies to initiate mass worker layoffs, move production abroad, and boost executive pay. In particular, um, Yale professor Daniel Markovitz has accused McKinsey of destroying the middle class. Is that accurate? Has this company contributed significantly to the erosion of North America's middle class? So I think one thing we can describe McKinsey as is an accelerant of trends. Um, But when it comes to CEO pay, they were definitely more than an accelerant. And by accelerant, I mean, they kind of pile on to trends 
uh, spread the gospel around the business world or even into, you know, the government, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, something like layoffs or offshoring, uh, things like that. Uh, but with CEO pay, I think their role was much more active. And uh, so back around 1950, the U.S. had a real problem in that worker pay was catching up uh, slowly with uh, managerial pay, you know, and I'm being a little facetious here, but uh, <laughs> but the gap between workers and executives was, uh, you know, after, uh, you know, mass unionization um, during the 30s and 40s, uh, that, that gap was 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 shrinking. McKinsey was hired by General Motors to do a study of executive pay and that study kind of became gospel in the industry, was spread around uh, in magazines like Fortune and the Harvard Business Review. And the idea is it kind of started a little arms race. Uh, People started finding out what other executives were making, wanted to make more ideas uh, to avoid the high taxes of that era, came about like stock-based compensation, things like that. And McKinsey really was a catalyst for starting that slow, but then, you know, rapidly accelerating upswing in, uh, in CEO pay in the United States. Mm. I, I want to talk a little bit about the opioid crisis. The Canadian federal government is joining a class action lawsuit against McKinsey for its role in this crisis. You report that McKinsey advised pharmaceutical companies to target high abuse risk patients to turbocharge opioid sales, and to tell patients the highly addictive Oxycontin gave them the best possible chance to live a full life. How do we think through McKinsey's potential responsibility in the opioid deaths of hundreds of thousands of Americans and Canadians? Right. So, you know, as you know, the the press has pointed out in Canada and the United States as well, McKinsey settled um, with a, most of the United States uh, state attorney generals uh, back in early uh, 2021 um, to the tune of more than 600 million U.S. dollars. Uh, it didn't admit wrongdoing at the time, but, uh, you know, McKinsey and and there's been a lot of documents that have, that have come out uh, even since we've written the book detailing in, in, in fine granular form. McKinsey's role in encouraging companies, especially Purdue Pharma, which it worked with for for a couple of decades, actually, to uh, boost its OxyContin sales. And I guess the way you would look at it is that McKinsey, you know, when it goes in with a company, it it really uh, the the these are very highly educated people. You know, uh, Dominic Barton, who I know we'll talk about some more, was was a Rhodes Scholar. And there's, mm-hmm. I started making a, a spreadsheet of Rhodes Scholars at McKinsey, and I had to stop. I gave up. There were just so many people. Um, mm-hmm. They 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 particularly recruit Rhodes Scholars. They have a program for that. This is by way of saying that there's some very smart, very hardworking people at McKinsey, and when they get a job. And uh, in, in a company, they sometimes lose the forest for the trees. You know, they 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 want to increase the company's bottom line, and sometimes they're working so hard that they forget the big picture. And, and that was certainly the case with McKinsey, where they were so with with Purdue Pharma, where they were so hell bent on increasing the bottom line, increasing profitability for their client, Purdue Pharma, that they got to the point of how do we increase OxyContin sales? How do we talk to doctors about prescribing more opioids? How do we look at this scientifically? Where do we go in the United States, you know, to target certain areas where people might be um, particularly inclined to uh, to uh, use this product? 
And, you know, there was no secret during much of this work that OxyContin was was helping to start an addiction to opioid crisis in the United States and in Canada as well that just hadn't been there before the 1990s. Um, so McKinsey was intimately involved in this company. McKinsey was so involved that uh, it's it's. Um, its consultants worked very, very closely, uh, not only to you know help them turbocharge sales, but also to help them reformulate, to get approvals uh, for their new versions of OxyContin. It was a very intimate relationship with this company, not only with this company, though, with other opioid makers as well. Um, I do want to talk about China as well. Uh, McKinsey's client list includes number of companies considered central pillars of the Chinese state, along with government ministries. How intertwined did the firm become with the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah. So, you know, one thing about McKinsey, it's a, it's a very decentralized company. Um, and uh, so it's kind of modeled, not kind of, it is modeled on a law firm, you know, where country um heads, you know, run fiefdoms almost and have an incredible amount of autonomy. So McKinsey thinks of itself that way. You know, they, they call themselves partners. They're, they're, they're the people they work for are not customers, they're clients. There's practice areas, all this vocabulary. China was no different. It was a very, uh, you know, independent um, kind of fiefdom, uh, you know, headquartered in Shanghai, huge office in Beijing as well. And it recruited locals because the locals uh, knew a lot more than uh, these uh, seasoned consultants from the West often. So over the years, you know, starting in the 1990s, moving into the 2000s and into this past decade, more and more people at McKinsey were, were locals, extremely well-educated, often, you know, at Harvard or, you know, Oxford or a place like that. Um, so I think what happened with McKinsey in China is that it became extremely localized. And uh, so it didn't see any problem or any contradiction with working with some of the marquee uh, state-owned enterprises in China whose heads are picked um by the organization department of the Communist Party of China. And sometimes the work they were doing was quite at odds with uh, U.S. and Canadian policy. Um, and we highlight one, one that we broke uh, and told the world about a few years ago, uh, which was their work with this uh, state-owned enterprise called China Communications Construction Company, which was the company that was building these islands in the South China Sea, these artificial islands that have turned the South China Sea into basically a militarized Chinese you know, zone now. McKinsey, I don't think, was helping the company with island design, but it was advising this company on its strategy at the very time that it was building these islands. And of course, that's in direct contradiction to you know, some other very important McKinsey clients, including the Pentagon in the United States. Mm. And in, in addition to China, it has also advised the Saudi Arabian and Russian governments. Also controversial, it advised ICE, America's Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, uh, including recommending to spend less on food and medical care for detainees. Of course, this led to an uprising within McKinsey. The company has been quick to say they don't do policy, but execution. To what extent has this allowed them to dodge scrutiny and, and the consequences of, of their advice? Yeah, you often see this refra refrain in McKinsey that, um, you know, they don't do politics um, and, uh, and it allows them to just focus on, you know, helping the client and not thinking uh, about the consequences. Um, and certainly it's work with ICE and, you know, not only 
did it cause a, a rebellion, um, you know, within McKinsey and some, some, you know, some, a lot of very upset people at McKinsey when they learned about the extent of McKinsey's work uh, with, uh, with ICE. Uh, but, uh, but some people at ICE were pushing back on them as well. And so um, it's, it is definitely a crutch when you say that. The thing is, it's really not that true. For example, when the former uh, managing partner for McKinsey, this is the, the gentleman that was there after Dominic Barton, um, a guy named Kevin Sneeder, um, you know, was asked uh, a few years ago about their work with Saudi Arabia. A, a lot of times these people will justify continued work in Saudi Arabia on political terms. Like, well, you need us there in Saudi Arabia or else the place will go to hell. You know, do you want Saudi Arabia to turn into some backward theocracy? You know, it needs this Western expertise that needs that is that comes through companies like McKinsey. And, you know, so we have to be in Saudi Arabia. So they give political justifications for work that is supposedly not political, which to me seems, you know, a, a bit of a, a contradiction um, and, a, a, you know, a bit of a thorny knot there. But, you know, they they do this work um, around the world. Now, I will say that McKinsey has changed a bit in recent years. Um, they have a new policy uh, in the wake of all these stories uh, that we and others have written about their work with authoritarian countries like, like Saudi Arabia, like China, like Russia, um, that they say they don't work with, you know, the defense ministries or the interior ministries or the justice ministries of these kind of, of countries. Um, but of course, in Saudi Arabia, they'll work with the economy ministry, um, you know, so they're basically trying to bolster, you know, the effectiveness of, of a deeply authoritarian uh, country by working with some of these other leading ministries. Uh, so, um so it's it's extensive, um, not only with authoritarian countries, but also with uh, kleptocratic countries. Uh, certainly uh, got into a lot of hot water in South Africa, as did other consulting companies um, with their work uh, with the former president's uh, administration, the Zuma administration, and these um, extremely corrupt state-owned companies um, in South Africa. Mm. We, we do, of course, have to talk about Dominic Barton, the, the Canadian who ran McKinsey during many of the scandals that you write about here. He would go on to become a key economic advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and then our ambassador to China. As best I can tell, he still sits on the Indo-Pacific Advisory Committee for Melanie Jolie, our uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs. What should Canadians make of Dominic Barton's track record? Yeah. So um, I, when we were first setting out to 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 write our series of articles at the Times, which eventually we wrote a book, you know, we did meet with Dominic Barton in New York when he was still the managing partner. And and obviously so many people have met him, you know, realize he's a you know, very charming, brilliant guy. But so many of these problems that we've talked about here in, in the last few minutes festered or started under his watch uh, at McKinsey. He was the managing partner for, for nine years, uh, for three terms, um, from 2009 to 2018. Uh, that's when this turbocharging with the opioid, you know, industry uh, stuff came out. Um, that's, uh, you know, when the work with ICE came out, uh, so much of the work uh, with Saudi Arabia, especially the ones that generated headlines, um, their work with Juul, um, the vaping company, all these things happened under his watch. Now, um, you know, what a McKinsey managing partner would say like him is that, well, 
we're not like a CEO of a company because we're such a, a decentralized uh, law firm model that it's more like herding cats, you know, when you're the managing partner. But the fact is that much of this work, you know, much of this controversy did happen on his watch. Um, and certainly he was uh, in charge of China for, for many years uh, for McKinsey as well. And then uh, right after uh, or soon after he uh, left McKinsey, uh, he became Canada's ambassador to China. I would say in the interim, you know, just after the ink was dried on his transition um, in mid-2018, he became chairman of Tech Resources, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, as you know, a big Canadian um, resources company, likes to blast mountains uh, in uh, British Columbia in the Rockies uh, to mine for coal. And uh, I found this quite interesting. Um, you know, one thing we haven't talked about is climate, but uh, the idea that a company that talks a really good game about protecting the environment um, and reducing carbon emissions, the idea that its head would go to work for a coal mining company that likes to blast mountains in the Canadian Rockies to smithereens, to me, kind of uh, says a lot about uh, a person. But uh, that's me. And uh, I, I do find it, you know, uh, he's he's a very, very interesting person, um, you know. And uh, like I said, he's been, it was on his watch that so many of these problems happened. Mm. And, and before Justin Trudeau took office, McKinsey had almost no contracts with the federal government. The Globe and Mail reports McKinsey has now received at least $117 million in federal contracts since 2015, when Trudeau was elected. In 2021-2022, they got $32.5 million. That's an 89% increase from the year before. They advised the Ontario government on pandemic response. Um, and in a report from the Auditor General, said this contributed to delays and needlessly complex structures. Some have been calling McKinsey the shadow public service, you know, that's not accountable to the Canadian public. Point of analysis here, Michael, why do our government seem to be so addicted to using management consultants as, a, as opposed to their own actual public servants to get projects done? Yeah. So I'll answer that a little bit elliptically. You know, so I, I mentioned tech resources and what's so fascinating is they had very a few contracts uh, with McKinsey before uh, Dominic Barton came to be chairman. And then, um, you know, we, we have a lot of access to McKinsey's billing records. Um, you know, we were fortunate to get these and saw that after he came in, the contracts just shot up to the extent that tech resources was one of the biggest um, clients for McKinsey after a, a year um, of Dominic Barton being on top of that company and so you know maybe that's analogous uh in canada as well uh with with uh, barton um you know working uh you know as an advisor uh, to the trudeau's government uh, then you see this rise in contracts but there's there's also a bigger trend here globally um you know for the past couple of decades mckinsey and other consulting companies have really increased their presence in government their role kind of coincides with especially in places like the united states you know a kind of a hollowing out of the civil service and uh, an increasing gap between the pay of public servants, um, you know, and what they could make in the private sector. And so uh, increasingly around the world, you know, you see uh, governments turning to consulting companies uh, for work, uh, for doing work. The idea being that, you know, maybe they can get around some bureaucratic red tape. Uh, maybe they are smarter than the people who work, uh, you know, in, in the ministries. 
And uh, and maybe you went to school with them, too. You know, maybe these these smart people at McKinsey or Boston Consulting or Bain, uh, other management consulting companies, you know, are are your friends and uh, they they get these contracts uh, and, and then they do work hard. But it's not just Canada where there's been you know controversies over the, the work that Canada that, that McKinsey did for COVID. Um, you know, also, this is a, a big um, issue uh, in France as well. And, you know, people, governments are in a hurry. They were obviously in a big hurry to uh, to find some uh, policies and map out some policies to address the pandemic. And so in that haste, um, they often turn to consulting companies. Certainly that happened in the United States, uh, in Canada, around the world. Um, so these guys are there. They're hungry for contracts and uh, they come knocking on your door and they obviously, in the case of COVID-19, they got uh, hired in droves. Mm-hmm. We, we should mention that a federal government-led review of McKinsey contracts recently concluded that there was no evidence of political interference when it came to the liberal government providing McKinsey with work, although opposition MPs do argue the review was not truly independent. I want to talk now a little bit about the response to your book and to your reporting. McKinsey did release a statement in response to the book. It said that the book fundamentally misrepresents our firm and our work. I'm just going to add uh, and read a little bit more from their statement. When we have made mistakes, we acknowledge them and made changes. We apologize for our past work on opioids and we're the first company to work with U.S. state attorneys general to help companies affected by the crisis. McKinsey also stated it is telling, but not surprising, that in a nearly 300-page book, the authors devote few sentences to these extensive changes, which uh, I'll just interject. You you did mention at the beginning of of this interview, neither do they make clear to readers that virtually all the events they described took place years and sometimes decades before our firm implemented its new client service policy and comprehensively upgraded our risk and governance terms and capabilities. Um, Your book was published last year. Since then, the company has sought to hire a new special position within its global ethics allegations management team. How how satisfied were you with that statement and and with the response to your work here? Yeah, so, um, you know, they make some points uh, in their statement. Um, Obviously, you know, our book, most of the chapters in our book are actually uh, about events that have happened actually quite recently, not decades past, although there were a few, um, you know, because we wanted to talk about the systemic uh, importance of McKinsey going back, you know, decades uh, and, and its importance in shaping um, society. But, uh, you know, certainly McKinsey, beyond their um, changes uh, with author- how they deal with authoritarian government work, you know, client work, they have made changes in the way that they uh, select clients. There's more review now to see if uh, client work uh, is how it affects the reputation of the company, whether it's legal, whether it's ethical, all these things they say they have done. Um, But I will say that, you know, often their reaction is, well, quite frankly, reactive. So when we write about, when and others write about their opioid work, it's after that that they say, well, we're not going to work with opioid makers anymore. When we write about their work with the tobacco industry, then it's, well, we're not going to work uh, with t- the tobacco industry anymore. Uh, when we write about the vaping industry, you know, that, that, that also, um, you know, they stop that work as well. So, you know, so much of it is reactive. It begs the question, well, what other areas, you know, have we 
probably not even touched yet. And and since we wrote the book, there are continue to be stories written uh, about McKinsey's work uh, that I would wonder would be affected by uh, their new um, policies on screening client work uh, more carefully. Some of my colleagues at the Times a few months ago wrote about their work with a, a nonprofit, supposedly nonprofit hospital system in the United States, and how they were working with that hospital system to um, develop ways to extract more money from people who couldn't afford to pay, even though in in many cases, those people weren't legally obligated to pay their bills, uh, you know, because of their income levels. Um, and yet McKinsey was aggressively helping them. Getting back to that losing the forest for the trees, um, y- you know, phenomenon, we see that, uh, you know, a bright, maybe idealistic young person would find themselves working for this hospital chain and and devising phone you know a, a phone conversation like matrix for their for their uh, operators you know for their for their workers to to squeeze money out of poor people you know um you know is that why they went to harvard for you know is that why they went to oxford to to do that kind of work so i think the jury's still out on whether uh, McKinsey, um, you know, will change, um, you know, its work. Certainly they do respond to these articles, uh, not just by us, but by many others. And and that's great. Um, But I think we still need to take a close look, uh, you know, at them uh, and see, see, see how they, how they implement that. Mm. And it, just in terms of, of criticism of the book, I wanted to raise one point with you, and that is the Times of London in a review writes, to accept the book's argument, the reader must buy into the notion that modern capitalism is bad and therefore a firm that makes its work better is making the world worse. Should our critique be on neoliberalism or globalization or even on advanced capitalism as a whole, as opposed to pinning the blame on one consultancy firm? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, certainly there may be a book to be written about the the larger causes, and I'm sure there have been a lot of books written about that. I'm certainly not a philosopher. Walt and I, you know, aren't philosophers. We're just journalists. Um, but, and and we kind of feel, you know, a little bit uh, out of our depth talking about big, you know, issues like that. But, but certainly, you know, in, even Dominic Barton call, called our book, I think he called it in Parliament in Ottawa, he called our book anti-capitalist, which I really take umbrage at. We are not anti-capitalists. Um, we're all for responsible capitalism and ethical capitalism. And and that, the only way that happens is by journalists um, and citizens, you know, calling these people out when they, they get out of control. That's the, that's why we have a free press. So when these companies do things like this, uh, do unethical things like this, they get called out for it. Um, that's not a critique of capitalism. I think it is a critique of capitalism as we've seen it over the last 40 or 50 years, this, this rise of shareholder capitalism. And, you know, the, the shareholder is always right. Uh, CEOs should be paid, you know, like like kings. But, uh, you know, it's certainly not a critique of the fundamental notion of a free market and, uh, you know, of, you know, of capitalism at its at its most basic form. It's just a critique of, uh, it's, it's just maybe an appeal to responsible capitalism. Hmm. And you, you raised the issue of a free press. And I, I want to close on this, Michael, just to spend a moment talking about the state of the media. Um, Canada has had a very rough couple of months in terms of our media. We we are in the 
process of uh, implementing legislation right now, which is essentially a link tax on big tech trying to curb the decline of our legacy media here in this country. And we also have a major trust problem in media here, which I know the United States does as well. According to a 2023 Reuters report worldwide, only now four in 10 people say they trust most news most of the time. As a journalist, what do you see as causing that lack of trust? And what are your thoughts on how we in the media can regain that trust? And that is such a good question. And, um, you know, certainly the fact that so many local newspapers, you know, in the United States and in Canada have, uh, you know, folded um, over the recent decades has been, um, I think, a big cause, a, a big, you know, contributor to the decline um, of faith in media. You know, when you don't have a local paper anymore, or maybe you don't have, you know, two local papers with, with competing views anymore, uh, people feel a little bit um, disassociated with, with the news if they only have, you know, the national news or whatever. And uh, the only, you know, I, and I guess, Tara, this seems kind of like a cop-out answer, and I apologize for that, but the only way we can regain trust is to to write good stories and to do what our job is, which is to hold people in power accountable. And that's the only way I see uh, that that we can do that um, as journalists. And, you know, certainly the rise of uh, social media, you know, has uh, allowed anybody basically to to broadcast, you know, unfiltered. And so, you know, it's it's definitely a new world out there. Um, and and we, we have to adapt to it. But it is, it's, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking problem um, to see this going on. And I think oftentimes, undeservedly so, uh, you know, the, the lack of trust is, is undeserved uh, because of so much good work that the media does every once in a while, you know, and there certainly are examples of, of news organizations that are just out for headlines and, and are, are not accurate. Um, you know, that, that happens a lot, but there's also so many examples of amazing journalism out there. So I'm rambling here. Um, I'm certainly not an expert on the media as a whole, um, a little bit, uh, off, off piste there, but, uh, but, but yeah, the only way I know how is to just do our job. Well, Michael, this is a fascinating book and so relevant to the Canadian political conversation right now. So thank you for this book and thank you for coming on today. It's really my pleasure, Tara. Lean Out will publish McKinsey's statement of response to this book at my Substack so that listeners may read it in full. Lean Out is hosted by myself, Tara Henley. And this week's episode is produced by Harrison Lohman. If you value independent journalism, please consider subscribing to my Substack at tarahenley.substack.com. Oh, 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 oh,